We'll follow that up with 2nd and 3rd John. If you've seen those, that will not take long. Um, Two or three weeks tops. Um, And then we will most likely be moving into an Old Testament book. Uh, So just a little bit of recap as we finish 1st John. Remember, John is kind of a, is what we would call a circular letter written to a group of churches around Ephesus where he is an elder. He's writing this letter looking to encourage the churches because false teaching has emerged and there have been those that they were in relationship with, leaders, people in the church that they thought knew and loved Jesus who have walked away from the faith and who are looking to draw others away. And so John is writing this super pastoral letter looking to assure them of the truth that they once heard is still the truth, that there's no new revelation to add to it. And so he's looking to, to one, to pastor and to counsel and to care for those who are struggling with the loss of relationships and these false teachers um, and the disruption that they've caused. But he's also looking to combat what the false teachers are saying and doing as well. And so he's done that primarily by giving three tests that he has walked through in multiple ways, multiple different times. He's kind of circled back to them. A moral test, right? Do we obey the things that God asks us to obey? A doctrinal test, do we believe the right things about both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus? Um, And then a, a social test, do we love believers? Like, do we love the people of God? And that if we are doing these three things, that they're going to be interlocked, and it reveals that we actually know Jesus. That we don't do one of them, that we do all of them, that they're all interwoven. And that's what we saw last week in the first five verses of 1 John 5. Um, So let's read, beginning in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life." So you can tell that John is, is beginning to, to kind of wrap up, to sum up his letter. He's, gonna, he's looking to, to make it concise here. Um, and, and he's going to give us a testimony from God concerning the things that he wants us to know, right? He's, he's not just saying, hey, here's what I've said. Trust it. It's good. He's going to go ahead and give us a word from the Lord testifying, a testimony um, that, that will allow us to have assurance now, here's the thing. We're, often, when we give our word, we don't really want to have to, like, defend it, right? So, like, when, you, when you're talking to your kids and you tell them, like, your word should be good enough, right? You're like, if you, if you don't trust what I'm saying, right, that's a, that's a 
a knock on my character. When I was a student minister years ago, we would, we would take students on trips, and after a while, after years of this, I would, they would say, hey, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do next? What are we going to do? But you got like 100 people asking you that, and I'm like, I'm just not going to answer that question anymore. You should know me and trust me that it's going to be good, and I'm going to take care of you, and it's going to be all right. And, and that, that was never satisfactory, right? Like they wanted more information. And I think John just assumes that we're going to be a little bit like that, right? That, that we're going to say, well, well what about this? Or, or how about that? And he's going to go ahead here and just really succinctly show us how God is going to testify to the truth of what has been revealed to us in First John. And so he starts with this kind of interesting phrase, the water and the blood. Look at verse 6. So, um, because the question that's being answered here was he ended last week with this. That if those who believe in Christ, who have Christ, are going to overcome the world. And the one that overcomes are the ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's kind of been lingering. And now here we go with, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. All right, so you're thinking, okay, what, what's the water? What's the blood? What's, what is he talking about here? And if you study church history, if you look at um, commentaries, you're going to see there has been a vast difference as to what John is talking about. Some assume what he's saying is that, that when Jesus was stabbed with a spear in the side and water and blood came out, right, showing his death, showing his humanity, that that's what John is talking about. Others want to look at this and say it's actually not that. He's actually talking about the Lord's Supper um, and baptism. He's showing the two ordinances, right? The one that is done through water and the one that is the, the re- representative of Jesus' death on the cross. But u- ultimately, what I think is going on here is this, is that the false teachers, and remember, that's who he's trying to combat. The false teachers are saying that Jesus either lacks divinity and others are saying he lacks humanity. They're willing to agree to one or the other, but not both together. But that's what makes Jesus the Christ. And so what John is doing here is he is going to combat what the false teachers are saying. And he says, this is he who came by water. The false teachers will agree with this one. This is baptism. This is Jesus's baptism. When he is baptized by John the Baptist, right? And so what the false teachers have come in and said is, look, there was a man named Jesus, but he was just a man, and the Christ, the Messiah, was, was still in heaven. And at Jesus' baptism, the Christ, like the Messiah, put himself on this man, Jesus, in that moment. And then that's why Jesus was able to do these miraculous things. But before he went to the cross, the Messiah like exited and went back to heaven and it was just Jesus who died, right? And so what they're doing is they're, they're making knocks at his divinity um, and, they're, and they're also saying that the Messiah wasn't actually human. What Scripture is teaching, what John is teaching us is that Jesus is the God-man. He is both divine and human. And so John is saying this, Jesus, he came by the water. He was baptized, but not only by the water, but by the blood. And so if we look just briefly at his baptism in Matthew. Just to remind you of this scene. This is verse 11 of chapter 3 of Matthew. 
John the Baptist says, I baptize you with, the water, with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. If you skip down to verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Right? So we have this scene where Jesus' um, ministry is kind of being inaugurated, right? Like where he is being empowered, he is being equipped, he is being declared, right, as the, as the Son, as the Messiah. And his ministry, his public ministry is going to come out of this, right? Like that he's going to now baptize with, with the Holy Spirit and with fire because he's bringing the truth of who God is. And he's saying, if you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. It's been declared. The blood, this is where the false teachers are really going to disagree. He says, but Jesus, in in verse 6, came not only by the water, but by the blood. The blood is the cross. Right? That the the Messiah, the Christ, went to the cross. The God-man went to the cross and was crucified, was beaten, was mocked, was humiliated, was murdered on our behalf, where he could say, the work is finished. The work that has been started is done, and I've accomplished what I set out to do, right? That for us to be reconciled to God, God had to come in the flesh. He had to take on our nature to reconcile us, that the work is finished. And so what John is doing is he's telling the church here, look, that there were these two historical moments, the baptism and the cross, and through the lens of those, we see the divine and humanity intermingle in Christ. That God affirmed Jesus in baptism, and then he affirms him at the cross, and how do we know he's affirmed him? Through his resurrection, right? That he's beaten sin and Satan and death, that he is alive again, that he is the Christ, the one who has come for us to purify us, to save us, to cleanse us. So then he, wants, he moves on and wants to say, look, so in order, if you believe these things, right, it's a doctrinal test. You believe the right things, then you have eternity in Christ. Now listen, we're not a people who tend to think, and I don't, I don't mean to mean redeemer, I mean like our culture. We're not really a people who think a ton about eternity, right? You, you don't find people lounging on their couch much anymore going, just thinking about, you know, the sweet by and by, right? Because typically, we're, we're, we're being entertained by something, right? We have music on, we have the TV on, we're talking to someone, we have our phone out, like we're doing something, and, and when we're focused on something else, the here and now, our minds do not go to the far off. They don't go to eternity. That we think about now and we think about the near future. But we know that in an instant, things can change. And there are these moments and these situations that give us a little bit more of an eternal perspective. Uh, about a year ago, 
I was driving to Amarillo, um, and I was between Highland Park um, and, was it Lakeside? Yeah, Lakeside. And I'm behind a semi on the right-hand side, and the semi is slowing down, and so I go, as I'm pulling up, I haven't had to hit my brakes yet, right? So I'm going to go over so that I don't want to knock my cruise off. And as I come around, there's a water truck that's making a left. So I get basically stopped looking to hang a left. And in, in a moment, right, my heart rate goes up a little bit. My eyes get real big. And I'm like, this could be, this could be it, right? And, and so I'm trying to figure out how to slow down and where to go because this truck's turning left. There's a semi here. I can't split the difference. And, and somehow, right, I'm not really sure how I avoided everything and kept on going. And so in the moment, nothing's wrong with my truck. Nothing's wrong with me. But my heart is pounding, and I'm just thinking, like, I can't, I can't conjure up that emotion, that feeling of, in an instant, things could have been very, very different. And so we can try sometimes to do that. We can try to, like, foster this, like, eternal perspective. We're just not very good at it. But when there's loss, when there's, when there's tragedy, maybe when there's new life, there are these moments when there's these close encounters. Maybe it's a big historical moment like 9-11, right, that makes you sit and think differently, like that could have been me or I could have been in this situation. When we see school shootings, like these type of things, they make us pause and they make us look and they make us think and they make us consider. But here's the thing, in that you're like, oh, I'll never forget this. And yet the emotion goes away, right? The perspective goes away. And, and maybe it's transformed us a little bit, but we can't have that just ever-present, I think about eternity, because we get into a rhythm of life and we think about now and in the near future and what needs to be done. But church, we have to be reminded this morning that there will be a day where we will all, each of us, stand before our king. Right? Like, that's not just for everybody else. There will be a day, whether it's in the far off future or in the near future, whether it's sudden and in an instant or whether it's this long, there will be a day where we will either breathe our last and we will stand before the king or where he will split the sky and we will see him. And in that moment, Matthew 7 comes to mind, right? In Matthew 7, we, we see this, this story, this short story of, of those standing before the king and they're saying, hey, let us in. He's like, I don't know you. And then they say, well, wait a second, look at all the stuff we've done. And he goes, depart from me because I don't know you. Right? And so we think, yeah, it's a story in Matthew 7 that's for other church. We will stand before the king someday. There will be a day where you will stand before him on your own. And in that, where is our hope? Like as you think about that moment, does it bring about fear? Does it bring about doubt? Does it bring about anxiety? Right, because that's what John is looking to do, is he's looking to give us assurance that your salvation can be known and it can be secure and that you have it eternally. So where, where, where's our hope? Because assurance is possible. Look at verse 13 again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. That we don't have to like fear that day. We don't have to like blind ourselves to that day. We don't have to, to, to try to like just focus on now and we'll deal with that some other point. That we see 
that our salvation is a gift that cannot be earned. That it is found in Christ. Look, whoever in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And then verse 11, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So whoever, who, whoever has the Son has life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Remember, John loves to divide everyone into two groups, right? We have light and dark. We have good and evil. We have those who know Jesus and those who don't. He doesn't let there be any kind of in-between area, right? You either are in Christ, you belong to him, or you are following the king of the world, right? You're following the prince of the air, you're following Satan, right? And so he's saying it's, it's one or the other, But what I love is he also doesn't just say that it's a gift, that he also doesn't just say that it's found in Christ, that you don't have to earn it, that it's given to you, but that it starts now. Right? Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life, not will have, has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Church, an encouraging thing for your soul, your spirit this morning is this, is that if you are currently in Christ, if you have him this morning, that the worst that this life can throw at you is the, is the most hell that you'll ever face. There will be nothing worse than this. And there is only more to look forward to. Right? Like that this is the worst it can get. And so that we have hope and we have peace. And he tells us, look, the testimony of God is faithful and it's consistent. Now, listen, in court systems in this day, you had to have two or three witnesses collaborate to bring up a charge against someone. It's one of the reasons that Jesus' trial was such a sham, was that there wasn't agreement. They They were struggling to find witnesses to say things that right, it would have, would have been seen as a sham when it was read of like, man, they didn't even do that legally and right. And so what, what John does is he lays out that God has testified to the truth of this with three witnesses. Listen to verse 7. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. The water, meaning Jesus' baptism. And the blood, meaning the cross. And these three agree. A quick aside here. If you happen to have a King James Version this morning, um, yours talks about three agreeing in heaven. Okay? So, there is, there are newer, sorry, there are older manuscripts that have been found since the King James was compiled. Okay? That, that show that in here, and what, the, what those who are copying this down were thinking was, man, we can make this look really good, right? We can talk about the, the water, the blood, the Spirit. We can make it the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father, right? And it just has this like poetic flow. But what John is not looking to make an argument about the Trinity here. John is looking to combat false teachers. And so in some of the manuscripts, there were this, there was this note on the side of like basically, and the Trinity, and the King James Version, right, took that note and has it in here, okay? Obviously, this doesn't change Scripture. It doesn't change doctrine here. But if you're reading that going, wait a second, mine doesn't just say the Spirit, the water, and the blood. But the Spirit, the water, and the blood of verse 8 is the, is the oldest and best um, manuscript translation. And these three 
agree. So what he's saying is at the baptism, God affirmed Jesus. At the cross, God affirmed Jesus through his resurrection. And then the Spirit, what his job is, is to affirm and to confirm in us the truth of what we see in Scripture, the truth of what we're learning about Jesus. Listen to just a couple examples of this. This is John 14, 17. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be with you. This is fifteen twenty-six. But when the Helper comes, meaning the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Right? He's going to come from the Father, and he's going to tell you about Jesus. And then verses uh, 13 and chapter 16. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The, the job, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to confirm and to affirm truth. It's to point us to the truth in Jesus. It's why when we're studying Scripture, there should be these aha moments where the Spirit just kind of illuminates and says, yes, that. It's why there should be discernment when people are looking to twist the truth that the Spirit would say, no, not that. That it would, be, it would bring clarity. That we see that Jesus is being confirmed through his baptism. He's being confirmed through the cross and his resurrection. He's being affirmed now through the Holy Spirit. That God's word has been faithful and consistent. That he's spoken in creation. That we see him doing miracles over life and death. Reminding us that he has the power of life and death. We, we think about the consistency of God revealing himself um, in Egypt, Right? That the point of the rescue, the point of the miracles is he's taking his people from Egypt to the promised land was so that they would know his voice. They would see his character. They would trust that he is good, that he is holy, that he is for them, that he is for his glory. That we would begin to see that scripture has an overarching arc and story of God redeeming his people. That there is an issue, a problem with sin of rebellion against him and that God has set a rescue plan in place and that all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is, is showing us this rescue that is coming in Christ, this rescue that is here and the fact that he will return for us once again. In Matthew 17 at the transfiguration, right, when, when, when they get, when three of the disciples get just a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus, what he would look like in his whole glory. They hear the Father once again say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so all of a sudden, the disciples go, right, after the resurrection, they go from being kind of bumbling, stumbling, not getting it, Jesus having to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan, right, to transformed men. We're going to look at that just a little more here in just a second. But God gives us these witnesses in baptism, cross, and the Spirit. And then listen to what John says. 
He says, so look, if you receive the testimony of men, right, that there are things that people have written and told you. There are things historians have told you. There are things that people could come and tell you today, hey, do you know what happened? And you believe them. You believe them if two of them say it. You believe them if three of them say it. You believe them. He's like, so if we believe the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. And so he says in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The Spirit will remind and testify of this. But whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. So he's saying those who do not believe right now, they're looking at God and they're saying, you're a liar. You're not who you say you are. And you haven't done what you said you would do in Christ. And Christ isn't who you claim that he is. Right? And that seems really bold of John. What he's saying is, look, if you believe what God has said, then you affirm this testimony. And if you don't, then you're saying, I need more proof. I need more evidence. Or I just don't agree. I don't believe it. Verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Listen, we saw this last week. The intellectual affirmation, intellectual belief isn't sufficient. Because even the demons believe. They will say that that is the Christ. They just don't follow him. They don't trust him. They don't surrender to him. They don't give allegiance to him. That having the Son is belief in the right things, that he is the Christ, the, 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 both the divine and the human. And that we then trust him. We surrender to him. We follow him. We remain with him. We continue Because we've seen even in the churches that John is writing to that there were those who at one time would have affirmed maybe some right things that have now walked away from the truth. And John says it's because they were never a part of us. They were never saved. That having Jesus is not just knowing some answers to a test, but it is having him. It's knowing him, following him, surrendering, having affection for him, trusting him. So the last thing we're going to look at this morning is this, is what difference does eternity even make? All right? If, we, if we're supposed to have a more eternal perspective, if John is saying, I want you to have assurance that eternal life is offered and it's found in the Son, what difference would it make? Because remember, the gospel of John was written to unbelievers. It was written to convince of the life and the, and the works of Jesus. But first, John is being written to believers to give assurance And we see that effect in the disciples, that through much of the Gospels, they just look like fools, like they miss it and they don't get it. And in John 2, right, it it tells us that, that after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit would remind the disciples of all these things that took place. And we see transformed different men, men who are bold, men who are willing to face death, right, men who no longer doubt Right, what, what Jesus was trying to say, but they now boldly proclaim it. They don't run from it anymore. That the Holy Spirit affected them and reminded them. So for us, what does this mean? What difference does eternity make? Here's the first thing. It gives us a wide-angle, big-picture look at the world. All right, like that, that Scripture tells us and teaches us some things about how we should look at the world. That guess what? There's going to be pain, and there's going to be tragedy, and there's going to be suffering, and trouble, and sin, and an enemy. 
But because Scripture has told us those things, then we see what's going on, and we can see that there's hope and that there is a finish line, and the things that are going on in the world are not there shocking, and we can't figure out where they came from. We know it's because of sin and rebellion. And so when, when hardship comes, we can say light and momentary are these things compared to the surpassing weight of glory that is coming on our behalf. That we look at the world not blinded, not waiting for the next haymaker to come, but we have eyes to see. We have eyes wide open knowing that this is not going to be the easiest ride. But that this ride, this world, this life doesn't get the final say. That we see all of what's going on and we understand that Scripture has told us this is what it would look like. And so if that's the case, if we see the big picture, we have hope. Right? We don't just have hope, we have peace. We don't just have peace, right? We have trust. So anxiety, right, can go away. Because anxiety happens when we don't trust who's in control. Or when we realize that we're not in control and we need, feel like we need to be. But if we understand that history is moving in a direction that God is leading it in, that there will be a day where human history will stop and we will either be with him forever or you'll be separated from him forever. Right? Like we can begin to, to rest in him and to trust him. We can have hope. We can have peace. So when things in the world seem to be going awry, as you think about wars or rumors of war, elections, things like this, the economy, the highs and lows of human civilization and life and history, that our souls are anchored deeper because those things don't get the final say. Those things are not where we place our peace or our hope. And if we do, then we will be anxious people, stressed and worried not sure what's happening or what's going on. Now listen, it doesn't mean that we get an explanation of, hey, this is why this is going on in your life or in your region or in your country, but we can be anchored in the hope that God is good and that He is in control and that this will not have the final word. It also frees us up. It gives us resolve and purpose for life. Here's why. This life isn't it. This isn't all that there is. If it was, if this was it, right? And maybe you were promised six or seven or eight decades, right? Then, and that was it, and there was no hope. Most of us would choose to be really, really selfish, to soak up all that we can get to do for me and for mine to take in all the new experiences and all the new things and to do it for myself and my sake. Because if this is it, I only get one shot at it. But if we know that this isn't it, that eternity is awaiting us, and that in eternity there is going to be a new heaven and a new earth, right? Like it's not like that creation goes away, but it is redeemed and given back to us, right? In the way that it was intended for. I don't have to be selfish with my time, literally. I don't have to be selfish with my money, right? That there are places I want to see and things that I want to do and things I want to experience. But guess what? I legitimately have time and eternity to do those things, right? Like it, it does, it's not just a theoretical by and by. Like it can anchor me in Pampa, Texas to say I'm going to give my life to this place 
for the kingdom that will last forever. And the things that I, I may feel like or people may accuse me of, you're losing out or you're giving up or you could go do something somewhere else in some bigger, grander place. I get eternity to explore the beauty of creation. I get eternity in relationships. I get eternity with people. I get eternity to know the Lord. And so I can serve him and wring my life out for however long he gives me, right, in a less glamorous place. I can do that. And, and it's eternity that gives me the assurance and the hope of that. Another, it can allow some of us in the room to walk shoulder to shoulder. Where, look, we would love to sit across the table and get to interact and talk and laugh and to do life together in these really deep ways. And yet we're going, but there are people that need to have hope and they need to know Jesus. And so we're going to link arms and we're going to walk shoulder to shoulder, side by side, knowing, guess what? We have eternity to do those things. And look, that doesn't mean that we don't have communion now, that we don't have depth of relationship now, but I don't have to be selfish with you. I can let you run in the circles that you've been given, in the influence that you have, because we'll sit around the, the, the banquet feast with the king someday for all eternity. Church, it means we can be long-suffering with people who in the long run may bring no benefit to your life at all in terms of like this life. And if we're not careful, we look at people as, do you make my life better or do you make my life harder? And so if you make my life harder, maybe I'll be a little bit like, try to be a little Christian and I'll give you a little bit of time, but if you're not gonna change real quick, then I gotta go interact with people who make my life better. But if we have eternity, then I can pour it out here. I can, I can just give it to those who, who bring nothing back into my life because the king sought me out when I had nothing to offer. When I was a rebel far from him, an enemy. Church, it, it, can, it means we don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear sickness or tragedy because guess what? The approval of others, tragedy, sickness, death, disability, do not get the final say about your life. Jesus does. And it will be declared for all of eternity. And so 40 or 50 or 60 hard years where your reputation takes a hit, where, where your life is just really hard and really difficult, right? It's not, to, it's not to downplay that at all. That just doesn't get the final say. And that's not how the story finishes. The story finishes in victory and redemption and in new creation, right? Where Jesus is glorified and shown as victorious and we get to, to revel in that. Because we will have new bodies. We will be with him forever in victory, it means that folks can, can give up the comforts of this life and go to hard, faraway places where, where death may be imminent. And that they're not fools. But it also means that you can just lock in in a place, right, and do it here for 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 years. And anchor yourself somewhere. Right, that it begins to give us some insight. Because here's the thing. Otherwise, 
right? Like you're, if you're living here with 80 mile an hour winds, you're thinking, I need to go to Red River, right? I need to go to the beach. I need to go somewhere where the wind doesn't blow, right? Like you're thinking, how do I escape this? But if eternity is in our heart, we don't have to escape anything, right? We, we live for the king, for his glory, for his namesake, for as long as he allows, because we trust Romans 8, that there is nothing that can separate us from him. And there will be a day where all will be made right. And so whether it's here or far off, whether there is comfort and ease or there is poverty and difficulty and struggle, that Jesus gets the final say. So John is not just writing, right, like a coffee mug verse here of saying, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I write these things to you to believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's not just like writing filler here that sounds good. He's saying this changes everything. And so if you have the Son, then have depth of assurance that you have everything you need that in the Son you gain eternal life. And that if you don't have him, if the thought of standing before him, you're like, I have no thought, no hope, no answer, then you don't have the Son and you don't have eternal life yet, and yet it's offered as a free gift, already acquired by the King, ready to be doled out. So church, we have much to live for, for as long as he gives us. And so I hope now as you think about however long you have left, whether it is long or short, whether it is seemingly easy or difficult, that there's a different level of hope and expectation that the Lord is still at work and he is still going to move and use me until I'm with him forever. Let's pray.